This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Have the rich been getting richer? Are the poor more destitute than ever before? Is the income gap between the top 20% and the bottom 20% widening with every passing decade? Are poverty rates rising or are they falling? Well, for some, the answer is clear. Uh, According to a story in the Washington Post this past September, income inequality in the United States has hit its highest level since the Census Bureau started tracking it more than five decades ago. I'm quoting directly. It's hit its highest levels, income inequality in the United States. And certainly that idea has been picked up by people who are running for the Democratic Party nomination, including Elizabeth Warren, who says that the prosperity that the country is enjoying today is for the few, not the many. But two recent reports issued by the American Enterprise Institute find that the answer to this question depends a lot on how you measure income and what kind of money you take into account when determining how much income somebody has. Do you consider resources that uh, people get simply by uh, the work that they're doing, or do you consider resources provided to the needy by federal and state governments? Do you look at tax units, or do you look at real households in which individuals are living? Well, that is the question that Richard Berkhauser, one of the authors of these two reports, has been looking at in uh, work that he has done both as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors to the President, which he was a member of until very recently, and in his work at uh, Cornell University, where he is an emeritus professor of policy analysis. Uh, Professor Berkhauser, uh, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Uh, Great to be with you. Well, eventually I do want to get to the question of changes in income inequality Uh, And I want to get to your measure of poverty and look at the poverty rate in the United States as as is uh, measured in a variety of ways. But let us begin, first of all, at looking at overall median income in the United States between 1959 and 2016, uh, which I know you have looked at in these reports. So uh, in one of the measures that you have put together here, Uh, it looks as if income hasn't improved at all. And in another, it looks like it's more than doubled. So I don't understand. How can this be? What what, can you explain to our audience how different measures can come up with such dramatically different results? Uh, Yes. So uh, what we've had over the last uh, 15 years in the uh, income distribution literature is a, a major uh, improvement in our ability to talk about uh, income inequality uh, back to the early 20th century. And that's the uh, work of uh, people like Piketty and Sayers uh, using uh, tax record data. And this tax record data is uh, extremely valuable, uh, particularly when it's the only game in town. And that's really the way it uh, has been uh, certainly before survey data came along. Uh, so what they uh, show with their data is that the rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten poorer, and the uh, middle class is stagnating. But uh, what uh, part of the reason for what they're finding is that while tax data is very valuable for going all the way back to 1913 when there's no other data, it's limited in the uh, 
kinds of uh, uh, income uh, that's measured. They're restricted to uh, uh, taxable income, which is mainly market income, uh, wages, salaries, uh, rents, dividends, that sort of thing. And uh, it is before uh, government. That is, it's uh, it's pre-tax income, and it doesn't include uh, either government in-kind or in-cash transfers. So what do you mean by in-kind cash transfer? You know, what are some examples of that? Yes, well, in-cash transfers would be uh, Social Security benefits, disability benefits, uh, 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 FTC payments. Uh, But in-kind transfers are uh, food stamps, uh, 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 housing subsidies, but most importantly, uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, those uh, in-kind transfers uh, now uh, make up uh, over $600 billion in uh, government transfers. So uh, Pickney says in their original work in 2003 uh, weren't able to capture uh, those kinds of numbers. And that gives you a sense of why you're going to get very different results depending on the income that you measure. So while the uh, tax survey data is very useful for long periods back into to, to, uh, to 1913, when we have survey data, um, uh, we have a much richer source of, of uh, income information, and we can actually, uh, with some simulations, uh, figure out not only people's uh, pre-tax income, but can adjust it for uh, uh, income tax and Social Security payments, and we can include both the uh, uh, value of government transfers uh, both uh, in kind and in cash, and that's especially important, I think, in the in the recent period. Now, before 1960, there wasn't as much in the way of government transfers as there has been in more recent times, because uh, ever since the war on poverty began and the expansion of federal programs by the Nixon administration and the Carter administration, you've, you've seen a, a huge growth in the, quite a range of uh, uh, programs that helped uh, uh, po- the weakest and the most problematic sectors of our, uh, of our society. So uh, I think it's uh, probably especially important to look at these things for this, uh, this last 50 years. Would you agree? Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, of course, uh, there were a number of uh, new programs that came out in the 1960s. But the other big one is uh, the Social Security system. So the Social Security system started in the 1930s in terms of uh, beginning to take in revenue through taxes. But uh, most older people in the 1940s and in the 1950s even we're not receiving much in the way of Social Security benefits, but now Social Security benefits are incredibly important. And in Piketty and Says's measure, they don't even include uh, the value of uh, Social Security benefits. Uh, so when you so you can get uh, two very interesting uh, statements, both of which are true. Well, Piketty and uh, some people go back to 1929 and say that was the uh, greatest uh, period of uh, income held by the top 1%, and today uh, we're reaching those sorts of levels. Well, that's true with regard to market income. But remember, in 1929, if you didn't have market income, you didn't have any income. So Picking and Sayers are still using that notion of market income 
not including the income of uh, all the people over the age of 65 whose only income is Social Security benefits. That's why to make that kind of comparison is really uh, inappropriate. You, you would have to realize that um, uh, government taxes and transfers have had a major impact in uh, both in general redistributing market income more broadly across the entire population, and certainly for older people and for people with disabilities uh, who aren't earning very much in the way of market income, uh, giving them resources through uh, Social Security benefits. Well, I, I can certainly appreciate that, but I also noticed that you include uh, Medicare and Medicaid as income. And sometimes when I look at the uh, way in which that program is administered or those programs are administered, I'm wondering, do people really get the benefits from those health services that uh, the government claims that they're providing. So if you look at how much is being spent, is that really how it, it, money that's, that can be thought to be income people are receiving? How do you deal with that issue? Well, I think that's the most controversial part of, uh, of our work. And um, we deal with it uh, by giving you two measures. Uh, one of what's been happening to uh, income to top, bottom, and in the middle, uh, when we include all in-kind transfers except for uh, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and employer-provided uh, health insurance, and then one with that. And you're absolutely right that uh, whether you include the value of uh, health insurance or not uh, really matters. But here's the, here's the other way to think about it. If you don't uh, put a value on Medicare, Medicaid, and employer-provided health insurance, then you're saying that uh, its value in your measurement is zero. So clearly that's too low. Uh, but there is an issue of how much people value their insurance. So here's what we do. Uh, it, it would be silly to uh, measure people's uh, how much um, Medicare uh, reimbursements you get in any given year because that would make the uh, that would make anybody who had major health problems in a given year, uh, they had a heart transplant or something, uh, they'd become a millionaire. So that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is not measuring the amount of expenditures uh, that the government has on each individual uh, in a given year. What we're doing is trying to figure out what is the market value of the services that are offered through Medicare and Medicaid uh, on average, and then for people in different risk groups. And then we uh, would give that value in our analysis to uh, to people who had those characteristics. And it's not in this work. Uh, this is done uh, by the Census Bureau. They they they've done it from 1979 through 2014. All we did was um, expend it backwards uh, from 1959 to 1979 because, and here's the major reason of what's going on in, this, in the first paper from uh, Eisenhower to Obama, uh, we're picking up in Medicare and Medicaid programs that didn't exist in 1959. So when we're comparing government tax and transfer policies in 1959 versus 2016, uh, these are tremendously expensive programs uh, that are counted when you count taxes, you subtract taxes, but if you don't provide a benefit for them, you really distort uh, uh, the effect. So, so uh, we admit that uh, our market value measure uh, uh, 
has uh, some issues, the issues that you suggest that maybe people uh, wouldn't be willing to pay that much, and they're sort of, uh, you, you don't have, uh, you, you, get, you, you get this health insurance, whether you would really, whether you would rather have the cash value of it rather than, than the services themselves. I understand what you're doing. That's a very interesting uh, solution to the problem, and it's good that the, uh, the, the, uh, the government has uh, provided the details that allow you to do that. So one of the things I noticed that if, I, if we use the, the, uh, the market income measure that is so popular out there in the media, uh, then it looks as if the income of the bottom 20% of the population has gone down by 76%, while the top 20% has gone up by, uh, has, has, has essentially doubled. And, but right. if you use the other measure, it looks uh, the other way around, that the lowest 20% have seen actually a larger increase in income and percentage terms than the highest 20%. That's an amazing fact. That's right. And uh, the reason for that is uh, the uh, uh, tremendous uh, uh, improvement in uh, medical care uh, and access for the bottom 20%. Uh, that's what moves it up. But uh, even if you, to the to 262% uh, between 59 and 2016. But even if you don't include uh, the value of uh, health, health insurance, it's still, they're still increased by uh, 183% or, uh, since, since 59. And that's because of um, uh, both the effect of government transfers uh, may, uh, through the tax system, namely uh, the child tax credit and uh, the uh, earning and tax credit, uh, as well as uh, the in-kind uh, value of food stamps, which uh, uh, have, have been very important, particularly in the last uh, 10 years uh, or, or, or so in this data, uh, since the um, uh, Great Recession in, in, uh, after the peak in 2007. Uh, so not taking into consideration uh, uh, SNAP or food stamps uh, or housing uh, will really matter. If you if you use the n n number that uh, you talked about that the Census Bureau uses, their number uh, often is pre-tax, post-transfer, uh, and they only include um, only include uh, uh, in cash transfers. And then, but even with that number, uh, the bottom uh, twenty percent uh, still. Uh, increase by 109% or double what they had in 1959. Well, this brings us very uh, close to your uh, second paper, the one that really looks at uh, the uh, amount of poverty in the United States. Uh, we have an official statistic uh, that's put out uh, periodically by the, uh, by the government that uh, declares that about 12% of the population is living in poverty. Uh, I think they said that about the year 2017, and they said that about the year 1969, and everybody uh, walks away believing that there's been no improvement in the poverty rate over all of this period of time, and that the Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty was an absolute failure. I've heard that again and again from conservatives and liberals alike. The liberals want to spend more and the conservatives say, why are we spending as much as we are? It's not doing any good. But I th 
some that paper that you produced by looking at the data and the way you are has changed that picture quite dramatically. What are you saying is the actual change in the poverty rate in the United States if we move away from the the market measure to the one that takes into account governmental transfers? Right. So, uh, as you say, uh, Lyndon Johnson in 1964 declared uh, war on poverty and uh, stated that 20% of the population in 1963 uh, were in poverty and that he wanted to uh, usher in his great society and uh, the war on poverty uh, to uh, reduce that. And uh, an amazing number of new programs came online together with uh, the Social Security system's uh, growth in, in benefits. Uh, uh, but uh, some of the major programs that were initiated, Medicare and Medicaid, for instance, and food stamps, these other in-kind transfers that we talked about, aren't picked up in the official poverty measure, because that measure is the one that I talked about just a little before that's based on pre-tax, post-in-cash transfers. So it takes into account uh, welfare payments or Social Security, and that's good news, but it doesn't take into account uh, the value of food stamps, the value of uh, subsidized housing, and most importantly, the value of Medicaid uh, to uh, the bottom part of the distribution, as well as Medicare uh, for disabled folks from the bottom part. Uh, so we have a an official poverty measure uh, that was intended to capture the effects of government policy on uh, the well-being, the uh, resources of the poor, but it didn't. It, it at the time it was very difficult to measure those things, or they didn't exist, and so this official poverty measure doesn't include those transfers. Uh, it's also pre-tax, so it doesn't look at, uh, as I said, the EIPC or uh, child tax credits. And uh, what we do is take this same measure of income that we talked about in the previous paper and now say, well, let's do the following. Let's anchor poverty. Let's agree that Lyndon Johnson was right, that uh, poverty was uh, 20% in 1963. But let's take a fuller measure of income that includes uh, the effect of government taxes and government transfers and reorder uh, the income of people across the distribution in 1963 so that we get that same 20% using our fuller measure of income. Because it wouldn't be fair to just add the value of food stamps or the value of Medicare and Medicaid to a threshold of poverty in 1963 that was set up without taking those things into consideration. So when you do that and you start both our full income poverty measure and the official poverty measure at 20%, what you see is that uh, the official poverty measure goes uh, very far down, uh, and it, it looks like the war on poverty is working between uh, 63 and 69. Uh, that poverty measure goes down to just a little bit over 12 percent. Then uh, by uh, 73, it actually goes uh, to about 11.1 percent. But after 1973, it goes up in the uh, in the 1980s and more or less fluctuates between uh, uh, 11 and uh, 13 percent. For ever since 1973. Well, that can't possibly be right, and it can't possibly be right <laughs> because uh, uh, it, 
we've had so much economic growth over that period that it's just implausible that the poverty rate wouldn't have gone down. Well, you know, that's that's where you, the argument comes in, that the, all the money's going to the rich. That's exactly the argument that you hear by Elizabeth Warren and, uh, and, and Bernie Sanders and other people running for the Democratic Party nomination, that the only people who are getting rich are the top end of the distribution. Yes, that's right. And as I said in the last paper, I think we uh, show that that's, that's because they're a lot of their numbers are related to these picketing sales measures that only measure market income. So it's absolutely true that market income inequality has increased substantially uh, over the last 50 years, uh, and median market income has gone down. But that has been uh, offset completely, uh, or uh, uh, in terms of absolute values, uh, at the median, and uh, it has certainly reduced poverty. If you're talking about President Johnson's uh, way of measuring poverty, that is to uh, look at it as an absolute level and only increasing the poverty rates based on inflation, not economic growth, and using a, uh, a fuller measure of income to do this. So when we do that, what we show is rather than stopping uh, the decline, the, the decline in poverty actually fell from 20% all the way down to uh, just about 4.5% by 1979, uh, in large part because of uh, uh, government uh, uh, tax uh, reductions in the taxes that uh, low-income people paid. Back, in, the, back in, in those days, even low-income people paid uh, income tax. Now, very few... Uh, people on poverty uh, or around the poverty level are actually paying any uh, anything in positive uh, income tax, and a lot of their Social Security taxes are offset by the earned income tax credit. So that's going on on the tax side, and on the uh, income side, uh, the value of Medicare and Medicaid, as well as the value of food stamps and uh, uh, housing subsidies have, uh, as I said, lowered that uh, uh, poverty rate, uh, the way we measure it, down to 4.5%. It went up in the 80s as the official poverty measure, but since then it's gone down. And uh, uh, by 1963 standards, only 2.3% of the people in 2017 are in poverty. So 2%, so, a little more than 2% of the population are living in poverty if we use the same kind of measure that Lyndon Johnson used when he declared the war on poverty and uh, adjusted for the different kinds of new programs that have come online. And so so the war on poverty has been won. Is that Would you agree with that? That essentially we have won the war on poverty in the United States? Yes, we have won President Johnson's war on poverty in the United States. I, I think this is the first time that uh, this kind of measure has been used. Uh, we have an, uh, alternative measures that are now uh, talked about. Uh, one is the supplementary poverty measure, but that supplementary poverty measure doesn't can't be used to talk about Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty because it only goes back uh, to 2009 uh, in the official supplementary poverty measure and in the uh, 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 the uh, absolute poverty uh, supplementary poverty measure only goes back to 1967. So, so let me so, ask you this question, though, uh, uh, Professor yes. Berghauser: What if 
If, if the poverty rate is actually this low, then why do we have yep. so many homeless people on the streets? I know that our audience is going to want to know your answer to that question because we hear and we see the homeless in San Francisco and New York City, Chicago, many other cities around the country. Why yep. do we have so many obviously very poor people in such uh, visible positions uh, in our big cities? Well, 2.3% of a uh, big number, and there are the 200 to 300 million, I don't know the exact number of people in the United States, somewhere between 200 and 300 million people, uh, that's still, you know, five or six million people in poverty, and we need to do something about that. There's no question about that. But think about it uh, in a slightly different way. I'd like to show this to show what I'm really talking about. Um, People can argue, and I think it's a justifiable argument, that because we, as a, as a nation, become much wealthier across the distribution, I would argue, uh, since 1959, shouldn't we raise that poverty levels, uh, level by more than simply the um, uh, uh, inflation rate? And uh, I would say, yes, we should think about that. What we should first do is declare that President Johnson's war on poverty is over, then use a proper measure and decide what that new threshold would be. So I'll just give you a little example uh, that maybe will give your uh, readers a better sense of what we're doing here. Uh, what I told you before is if you anchor the, uh, the full poverty measure that we're doing, the full income poverty measure, at, at 1963, it's 20%. But if we use the full income poverty measure and anchored it at 12.3%, uh, which is the official poverty measure in 2017, and we look back and looked at our 2017 using the official poverty measure, I mean, that's arbitrary because I don't think that really tells you anything. But suppose you believe that 12.3% of the population in 2017 truly is in poverty. Well, if we did that and we used our full income poverty measure, properly measured for uh, inflation over that period, uh, and then looked at how many people would be in poverty in 1963, if we used our 2017 standard, it would be 66.2%. That is... So, so in other words, measure, two-thirds of the country was living in poverty uh, back in the 1960s if we used the right. same measure of poverty... Uh, that uh, is the official statistic uh, in 2017. That's correct. That's correct. So well, that's that's sort of not in, credible. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it's credible in the sense that we have made tremendous progress. So if we wanted to make it 12.3, that would be fine. But that would be saying, in Lyndon Johnson's terms, that that level, that level, 66 percent of the population in 1963 would have been in poverty if we used. 2017 standards as uh, uh, that you're defining uh, with the official poverty measure today. Well, this is fascinating material. Uh, I just have to ask you this, Professor Berghauser. Why hasn't anybody else been pointing this out? Why has it been left uh, to your team to, to bring this to the uh, view of the public? Is there politics behind this? Do people want to believe there's a high poverty rate in the United States for one reason or another? Well, I don't know. I, I think you're probably old not, as old as I am, so you remember the 1950s and 60s, and you remember the March of Dimes. We were going to uh, uh, solve the problem of polio. 
right? Well, we solved the problem of polio, but the March of Dimes didn't go away. We just redefined it so that we could continue to march and do some things. So, so in some sense, there's that concern on the left, that if, if we actually are solving the problem of poverty, then we won't be interested in doing more for lower-income people. And on income distribution grounds, one could argue that you want to do it. But I think, I think it really uh, is unfortunate if the official poverty measure that is trying to establish how well we're doing is basically broken. And everybody agrees that it's broken, uh, but it can't be changed. <laughs> One of the reasons it isn't changed has to do with uh, uh, insider, inside the beltway uh, reality that uh, monies go to the states based on the official poverty measure. And so it's very difficult to get legislation through, no matter who's in charge, Republicans or Democrats, where you're taking some money away from some states, giving it to others. So that that's the reason why the official poverty measure is still used uh, for allocation of uh, federal government resources to the states, even though across the board academics recognize the official poverty measure is broken uh, along the ways that I've discussed. What we do in the paper is show three other ways that uh, uh, academics measure poverty. But too, too often that the newspapers only look at the official poverty measure. And uh, when, we, when I was back at the council, uh, we reported some early, uh, early work that we had done on this. And uh, the newspapers were uh, saying uh, uh, this number of 2.3 can't possibly be correct because the official poverty measure is so much higher. Uh, well, again, the poverty measure is... is uh, uh, is inappropriate, and it's difficult to talk about these things without getting into um, people's judgments about how much redistribution there should be in the United States. And I, uh, you know, I think there's arguments on both sides that way. The purpose of this paper, however, is to say that, you know, if we're talking about President Johnson and his uh, vision of improvements, uh, clearly we've succeeded along those lines. And uh, Bob Lantman, who, uh, when I was at the Poverty Institute back in the 1980s, was still alive, uh, was at the Council of Economic Advisors in 1964 and uh, wrote a book in 1971 on his experiences there. And one of the things he said was that, you know, um, I believe in holding the poverty line constant in real terms and doing that every year because that's a good way to measure success for my generation. But for another generation, once we won this battle, uh, uh, President Johnson's battle, perhaps we should rethink what the poverty threshold should be. I don't have a problem with that, but I do have a problem with a statement that uh, we haven't done much for the poor uh, since 1950 and 1963. Clearly we have. Uh, we have dramatically reduced uh, the number of people who would be living in poverty based on 1963 standards. Uh, and as I said, you can think about it the other way. We, if you if if you think that 66.2 percent were in poverty based on 2017 standards, we've got that all the way down to 12.2. So we moved half the United States back to uh, above poverty in 2017. Well, it only makes sense to think this uh, is what's happened because uh, the growth of the American economy has been uh, enormous over this period of time, whether it's been 2% or 3% it, it, over when it accumulates over a 50-year period. That's a, that's a huge growth. It would be surprising if we hadn't done a lot. 
to reduce poverty in the United States. And I, I'm sure that we're going to go uh, forward with misleading statistics because if Congress has a vested interest in having misleading statistics, the Congress is going to keep doing the same old, same old. So uh, thank you very much for this illuminating conversation, uh, Professor Burkhauser. Uh, happy to find a chance to talk to you. I've been speaking with Richard Burkhauser, an emeritus professor of policy analysis at Cornell University and a former member of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors to the President. Uh, thank you uh, for joining me on the Education Exchange uh, again, uh, Professor Burkhauser. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.